Good morning, everyone. Morning. Now, I just, I wonder, do you ever wonder if Jesus has done it all, which is a phrase you hear, sometimes life is amazing, but sometimes it's painful and difficult. And why do bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? Why do I feel like sometimes I'm so close to Jesus and then other times I feel like I'm walking around in circles? Why do I feel like I'm living with a sort of tension? My name's Paul and I'm part of the preaching team here at Sutton Vineyard. Hi, good morning. And those are the kinds of questions that we're going to be thinking through this morning. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word to us. As we come to look at it once again this morning, I pray that it would come alive and that we would see you in a new way. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us. Amen. All right, last week we had a special service and we are now back to our regular scheduled programming. You know, every church denomination uh, brings different things to the wider church. And actually, that diversity is pretty amazing. It's pretty great. And that's also true of vineyard churches. And that's kind of what this series is about. We're looking at the values and the theology that vineyard churches align to. And today, as Bev said, I'm going to be doing what is the kingdom. And so we'll cover that along with what is often called the now and the not yet of the kingdom. This now and not yet theology is evident in Jesus' teaching, but what he said about it and his role in it was scandalous in his day. More on that one later. So how are we going to do this? Well, in four parts is how. First, we're going to briefly look at what we mean when we say God is king. Second, we're going to do something of a skydive through the Old Testament to build up a picture of God's kingdom plan. Yeah, skydive. I know, Jason, it's going to be great. Um, to build up a picture of God's kingdom plan and how God's people had come to understand it by Jesus' day. Third, we'll take a look at what Jesus his, himself has to say and where this now and not yet theology comes from. Side note, Jesus says a lot about the kingdom in his teaching. And so we're going to be really focusing on, on just this one part. Fourth, and to conclude, we will look at what that all means for us today. So first, God is king. And we are, of course, very used to the idea of a monarch here in the UK, aren't we? And we've had a remarkable couple of weeks in that regard. For many, if not all of us, I think the queen was a permanent fixture in our lives. You could just rely on the queen being there. But as permanent as she appeared to be, she has passed away. And we now have King Charles III. And while the king will open parliament every year, just as the queen used to, it's really the MPs who set the laws that we all live by. God is not like our king. He is truly permanent. He's very firmly in charge of history. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He sets the laws of nature. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's the high king of heaven and there is none higher. And we like to say he's sovereign, don't we? That's a word you might hear. Now, if that's the case, 
Surely we're already living in God's kingdom, aren't we? Well, that doesn't seem quite right somehow because if God is king and God is good, why do some things seem a little broken? Lying politicians, wars, cataclysmic floods, people having to choose between heating and eating. Well, let me ask it this way then. Is there any way in which God is not king? Or at least not treated like the king that he actually is? To answer that, we need to appreciate that God has granted us creaturely freedom, what the philosophers like to call libertarian free will. It means we get to choose how to treat him, how to treat one another, and how to treat his creation. And I would suggest to you that our ability to do good or evil in the world is quite possibly the only axis of movement that we have in this life. And when we live morally upright lives, when we behave in line with God's will, when we honor God as the high king that he is, there we will find the kingdom. Equally, if we reject God's rule in our lives, well, that way lies calamity. Now, I'm sure you'll recognize this line from the Lord's Prayer addressed to God the Father. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is always done in heaven. Whereas on earth, it seems a little less assured, shall we say. Why? Because while God remains intimately involved in his creation, he is choosing to temporarily suspend his kingly authority to allow us moral freedom. It seems then that the answer is for us to just live morally upright lives. And that's rather easy to say and rather harder to actually do. Our hearts are fickle. And some things we face are morally ambiguous. And if we know our Old Testament we already know how hard it is for God's people to do the morally upright thing. To follow his will, to treat him as king. But God has a rescue plan. One that began with creation itself, which has since unfolded throughout history and which continues to unfold even today. So let's take a look. Second then, an Old Testament skydive. And I am really looking forward to this because I nerded out during the prep. All right, we're going to build up some context about God's rescue plan, starting at Genesis and doing something of a rapid descent towards what Jesus has to say about the kingdom of God. Now, I can't cover everything because the Old Testament is massive and much of it is relevant, but I will be pointing out key theological landmarks along the way. At about 6,000 metaphorical feet, I'll pull the ripcord and deploy our parachute, at which point we'll catch our breath, and I'll summarize what we've seen along the way. Then we will continue with what Jesus has to say at a slightly slower pace. You ready? Let's go. First landmark, Genesis. The opening chapters of Genesis, no matter how you read them, whether that's literally or figuratively, you have to accept it's a blueprint for how God and people should have coexisted. It's how God wants things to be, a loving, creative partnership, where to be clear, God is the senior partner. And it's a two-tier system, morally speaking, God at the top and us. Adam and Eve, man and woman, are given stewardship of creation. And in some sense, you can think of them as the first human inhabitants of the kingdom of God. They're living morally upright lives with God as king. 
He is their God, and they are his people. By Genesis 2, though, you see the tragedy of the fall, where Adam and Eve freely choose to side with the serpent, Satan, and they reject God and his rule as king. The relationship with God is fractured, and Adam and Eve must leave God's presence. Next landmark, Abraham. God's rescue plan becomes clearer to us as of Genesis 17, where God makes his agreement, his covenant with Abraham. The whole chapter is pretty great, actually, because God makes some spectacular promises. But let me highlight verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, this is God to Abraham, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. In other words, he will be their God, and somehow, it's not totally clear yet, they will be his people once again. Next landmark, Exodus. After Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph, God's people are now slaves in Egypt. We know this one. God sends Moses to Pharaoh to demand the release of his people. His plan is to have his people live in a loving, restored relationship with him in the land of Canaan, as he'd promised Abraham. Quite some timeline here. The gap is somewhere around 400 years from Abraham to this moment with Moses. Some plagues later, the people leave Egypt, come through the Red Sea, and eventually arrive at the promised land, Canaan. God inaugurates this moment by providing Moses with the Ten Commandments, twice. Because the people have chosen to inaugurate this moment by creating a golden calf to worship instead of God. In his anger, Moses smashes the first set of tablets and has to go back to God for a second copy. The whole setup here in Exodus is a big deal. It's marriage-like. It's an intimate agreement between God and his people to set them up in their new home together in Canaan. He's a holy God. So there are some important requirements for living in his presence. Now, there's much you could say about all of this moment, but Exodus 29:45 is important because it shows us what God's desire is. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. Next landmark, Samuel. The people no longer like this God as king set up so much, and they demand the prophet Samuel appoint a human king instead. 1 Samuel 8, verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. What follows after that verse is Samuel on God's behalf outlining for the Israelites how things will now go from bad to worse if they do in fact appoint a human king. So naturally that's what they do. And it doesn't work out well. It starts off with King Saul and King David. And as you track through the rest of the books of Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, you see the total moral disintegration of God's people. It's very distressing. And it's not just enabled but it's spearheaded by the very same kings and queens they put in God's place. By 2 Kings 21, the king, Manasseh, is into the occult and child sacrifice. God repeatedly warns his people through his prophets from Moses onwards that if they continue to provoke him, if they continue to turn their back on him, they will be exiled from their home. They can't be part of the kingdom if they won't acknowledge the king. 
And so the people are eventually exiled to Babylon in disgrace. Jerusalem and its temple are destroyed, but God is not done with his people very far from it. Next landmark, Babylon. (laughs) God announces through Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel too to make sure they get the message that he will eventually restore his people to their home in Israel. He also announces a new agreement, a new covenant through Jeremiah. This new covenant builds on the one he gave his people through Moses. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, watch this one, it's a belter, it's the one that Sam gave us a few weeks ago. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Side note, it had got so bad the country had split. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. I'm going to pause there. God was their husband. The covenant he set up through Moses was marriage-like in its intimacy and expectations. And because the people broke the old covenant in spectacularly awful ways repeatedly over the course of successive generations, God's going to provide an even better one. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And in the next chapter, Jeremiah 32, 38. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I think he's trying to tell us something. In any case, God is saying that his plan requires a change of heart in his people. How's God going to do this? While in Babylon, Daniel of the lion's den fame also has a vision. Daniel 7, 13 to 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel sees that God is going to send a Messiah, this son of man, to restore his people. This Messiah will usher in the kingdom of God in a very real and everlasting sense, at least compared to how things had been prior. Presumably then, this Messiah will be key to the law being put in the minds and hearts of God's people as Jeremiah prophesied. Next landmark. Roughly 70 years after being exiled, the people come back from Babylon, just like God promised. Ezra and Nehemiah are your books for this one. They spell out the return from exile and the restoration of Jerusalem and God's temple. Then, not long after... 400 years of silence. What a timeline. Where is this Messiah, this son of man? The people want to know, especially when the Romans turn up and occupy Israel. Final landmark, Jesus. He is the son of man that Daniel saw. By Jesus' death on the cross, the demands of God's justice and holiness were met. The rift that opened 
up way back in Genesis was healed. And the way was opened for us to have an intimate relationship with God the Father once again. What does that mean? John 14, 23. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. And in John 16, 7, Jesus says that he must go so that God's Holy Spirit, the advocate, the paraclete we sometimes say, can come to God's people and live within them. That is how he will write his law, his description of how to live with him as king on our hearts and minds. If you're a follower of Jesus, welcome to the kingdom. Okay, let's pull the ripcord. Take a breath. What did we just see? We saw, first, that from the beginning, God has desired an intimate relationship with each of us, just like it's blueprinted in Genesis 1. He will be our God, and we shall be his people. Second, we saw that God's timelines and plans are not ours. We sped through thousands of years of history and countless lives. And you know what? He's not done yet. He's still working today, now. Third, we saw that when God's people repeatedly treated him with disdain, his staggering response was to draw them even nearer to himself. Finally, we saw that Jesus is the Son of Man, the Messiah, and that his death and resurrection was the inauguration of God's everlasting covenant and kingdom. God is now so close to us that if we're followers of Jesus, we can call him Abba, Father, Daddy. It's remarkable. God is my Father, and my Father is the King. So now we return in some sense to where we started. If that's all true, why is life in the kingdom sometimes amazing and sometimes painful and difficult? Thirdly, the now and the not yet of the kingdom. With all of that context, and some missed out, let's look at the now first, because that's the easier of the two to reckon with. Jesus' death and resurrection opened the floodgates of God's activity in our lives through the Holy Spirit, who came at Pentecost. In other words, God has made his home with believers, and therefore our interactions with God's Holy Spirit are the key to the now. To live with God as king isn't a thing you switch on and off. It's a way of life. It's the deepest relationship in your life that should define every aspect of your being and your identity if you let it. It's not about answered prayers when you need things, though that's amazing and great if that happens, but it's about immersing yourself in the Godhead so that you can build a life that is pleasing to God. Your life should be permeated with God's presence and involvement. And that means... We get, and I mean we get to be, it's a privilege to be Jesus' hands and feet in small groups, at work or in the home, at Waverley Abbey or Lighthouse. Sometimes it's big and it's obvious, but more often than not, it's actually the smallest word, the unnoticed kindness, the quiet prayer. It's offering some, someone some food or drink. Or maybe that most precious of resources, your undivided attention. It's being with someone who's lonely or struggling 
or unwell. Those are kingdom things too. When I lived in Newcastle, I was chatting to one of the staff at our church. And she joined the church after me and began her work with students shortly after graduating. Fantastic at what she did. And I asked her how it was that she'd ended up at our church. And she said, it was because of you and Steve. Now, Steve's my friend and he was my best man, but I had no idea what we'd, you know, that we'd had any involvement in her being at our, at our church. So I probably looked confused and she explained. She said there was a student dinner and I was just visiting the church, but I, I thought I would stay for the meal. And I didn't know anyone. And when I sat down, you and Steve said, hello. And you made me feel welcome. And so I came back. Ultimately, that led to her staying around and eventually joining the church staff. A hello might be all it takes. You have no idea what God can do with your seemingly unnoticed actions. Equally, you might be called to something truly enormous. The thing is, the scale of the operation doesn't matter. Listening to the Holy Spirit and obedience does. Right, let's talk about the not yet. So you know that phrase, you might have heard it, Jesus has done it all. I find it could be problematic because it doesn't identify the it. What is it exactly that Jesus has done? The it is massive. It is providing access to God the Father by his Holy Spirit so that we can walk with him every day. That's what the cross is about. And that's far bigger than I can wrap my head around. It's worthy of endless praise. But what it is not, at least not yet, is the fully realized kingdom of God. Here's Jesus himself in Matthew 13, 24 to 30. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, typically with any parable Jesus tells, you might have to go and look around for an interpretation or have a good think. Here, though, in the next verses, Jesus explains it for us himself. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's him. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. We live between Jesus' first and second coming. 
We are yet to reach that end of the age. And the Son of Man, Jesus, has yet to wrap up history as we know it. We live in unfinished business. God's work is not yet complete. Evil exists in the world, represented here as the enemy and the weeds among the wheat. That is why bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. Though to be clearer here, I don't think it's quite as simple as calling people good and bad. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. That's why we all need Jesus. Nonetheless, evil exists. And the enemy does all that he can to malevolently disrupt and sabotage God's work in the world. And that is why we must push for the now. But what is God up to? Why show Daniel a vision of the Son of Man and his everlasting kingdom then wait so long to actually do it? The people of Jesus' day, the Pharisees included, it's very easy to paint them as the, the baddies, but really they were looking as well. They were actively looking for the Messiah, the Son of Man, and they were asking the exact same question, 400 years. They were expecting military might and a swift and glorious end to evil, suffering and oppression. Surely, they think, that's the only way to interpret Daniel's vision. But God's plan is different. Jesus says in Luke 19.10 that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And then in Mark 8.31-33, to 33, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. In other words, Jesus is telling them that the next and critical step in God's plan is not to wrap up history and expel evil. That will come. But first, Jesus, the Son of Man, must go to the cross and atone for our sin, our missing the moral mark, if you will, our rebellion and our rejection of God as King. As we heard, Jesus paves the way for Pentecost and the gift of God's Holy Spirit to his people, which changes hearts and minds and helps us to live with God as King. And what Jesus is saying is so scandalous that Peter decides to have a quiet word to remind the Son of Man exactly what the deal is. As he appears to have forgotten that the Son of Man is supposed to come in fiery glory and resolve everything in one swift maneuver. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, the people who this is all for, me and you included, he rebuked Peter. Wrong priorities, Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, God's plan, but on the things of man. Again, God's plans and timelines aren't the same as ours. When Jesus does return to wrap up history, he has made it clear that there will be those in the kingdom and those outside of it. This is important. And the stakes are as high as you could imagine. In 2 Peter 3, Peter says God's not slow. He's patient. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all, that all should reach repentance. God does not want anyone outside of his kingdom. And he's providing as much time as he can for people to freely choose to come to him, which they now can, thanks to Jesus. Because he loves us so much, he wants to be our God and for us to be his people. Let's come into land. Fourth, and in conclusion, living with the now and the not yet. 
So we have the now, which is amazing. The evidence of which is the Holy Spirit and his activity in our lives. And we have the not yet. Because as we've seen, the kingdom isn't fully realized yet. There's unfinished business and evil sometimes has its day. God is being patient. The wheat is still growing, but so are the weeds. There is a tension here which God is actively allowing. And we don't like tension. We're biologically wired to solve tension. Because tension requires us to be engaged and to think. And that costs literal calories which we'd like to try and conserve. This is an eschatological tension if you want to be nerdy about it. And I do because I'm a monumental nerd. Eschatology is about final or ultimate things. Not escapology, that's a different thing. (laughs) Solving this eschatological tension is dangerous and is actually not our responsibility. If we ignore the now, we have what is called an under-realized eschatology. We act as though there's no Holy Spirit available to us today and as though everything is yet to come. The risk, we keep our heads down and we fail to produce spiritual fruit in the here and now. On the other side, there is also risk. If we consider only the now and ignore the not yet, we act as though everything is finished. This often fails to acknowledge the evil in the world and if we're honest, in our own hearts and can give way to prosperity gospel teachings because if you don't have it, whatever it is in this context, why? You just need more faith. Too much eschatology, if you will. And do you see how both extremes are dangerous? We have to live with the tension. I personally struggle with the now and I have done for many years. I don't come from a vineyard background. And when my wife Heather and I first joined a vineyard church, I was like, this lot super into the Holy Spirit. It's a bit weird. (laughs) I didn't realize it at the time, but I was being a very not yet person and ignoring the now. And if I'm not intentional, I slip back in that direction where I hold the Holy Spirit at arm's length, put my la-la ears in, and it costs me spiritual growth in the here and now. But God's placed me and my family here in a vineyard church so that we can learn and grow, and we continue to. So how do we handle this tension? As I was reflecting on today, on this talk, I felt God give me the words, true north, which he and I explored together, and I, would just, I want to share that with you. Now, our ancestors learned that when they sailed, they needed to be able to navigate well. They couldn't rely on where they thought they were by using sight. And at first, I mean sight that way, they used the stars initially, which was great when the skies were clear and less good when they weren't. Eventually, they used the compass instead, which worked in all weather conditions and pointed towards the North Pole. But did you know there are two North Poles? Mm. People are quickly Googling. (laughs) There's magnetic north, and there's true north. Magnetic north points to the magnetic north pole, which exists because we live on a giant iron magnet. Our planet's molten core generates the magnetic field. Fun fact, the magnetic pole 
North Pole moves because the molten core that makes the, the magnetic field also moves and churns. Occasionally, the planet gets magnetically flipped, turned upside down, and the poles literally reverse. North becomes south and vice versa. And if you're thinking that's a bad day for compasses, and generally a little concerning, I'm not going to disagree with you. Another fun fact, we're actually overdue a magnetic flip. <laughs> True North, on the other hand, always points towards the geographic North Pole. It never changes. And I believe the question is this, whether storm or calm, how are you navigating? We've had a change of prime minister which seemed to be outdone by a change of monarch. But we'll also soon have a change of senior pastors, and that can be disorientating. I promise you, there will be more change in the days, weeks, months, and years to come. We live in unfinished business. We are unfinished business. And to add to that, there are undoubtedly things in your life that are difficult, confusing, distressing, tiresome, and frustrating, the very not yet things we all experience. How are you navigating? Do you follow your hunches? What you can see or what other people are telling you? These things probably have their place, but I can tell you it is only God's Holy Spirit who knows where the spiritual true north is. Are you making space for his work in your life, or are you trying to locate true north your own way? Are you trying to sail solo? Let me make this practical. Are you reading your Bible, going to a small group and praying? Are you spending time in God's company with no other agenda than to just be with him and learn from him? You need to carve out space and time to hear God's Holy Spirit. You need to learn to hear his voice and do what he says. You need to build a life with God to successfully navigate the now and the not yet. I've been really bad at this the last few years. I'd slip into taking my relationship with God for granted. And even as I was preparing this talk, he was just gently nudging me, reminding me that he loves spending time with me for its own sake and because he wants to guide me and because he does have a plan for my life. And I've had to face the question time and again, do I trust him with my life or do I want to sail solo? He's so patient with me and I routinely have to say sorry because I get it wrong. I suck at sailing solo. His offer is the same for all of us. He wants to be our God and for us to be his people. He loves you too, and wants you to live in his kingdom, to take part in what he's doing in the world, and to navigate all of it with his Holy Spirit as your guide. His work is not yet finished, and so neither is ours. Let's stand. If the worship team wanna come back, I have talked a lot, and what I want to do is give you space. So we're just gonna wait for a moment. How are you navigating?
Come Holy Spirit.